morning, beloved of Bethel. Uh, I am grateful to be with you this day to share with you from God's Word. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 33. We'll read the entire chapter, and then we will look at it in three points. This is God's word. This is his most holy word, his inspired and inerrant word. Hear then God's word. But first, let us pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are present with us. We thank you that you are the great God, the Almighty. We thank you that you are the triune God, the true God. And we thank you that you have given us your beloved Son as our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our bridegroom, our covenantal friend, our Savior, our Redeemer. We thank you that you're the minister in the heavenly places. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, our minds to understand. Help us as we read the word and hear the word preached. We pray for your servant that he would decrease, that you would increase, that you would be glorified and exalted and we would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The word of God says in Isaiah 33 verse 1, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is left upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of our times. The abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. 
And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass, it withers, the flowers, they fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. It was a treacherous time for Judah, beloved. It was a time of much devastation, of much destruction, death, dismay. All around them, they were surrounded by death, by a brokenness, by the brokenness of the world. And God sent Isaiah to speak hope in the midst of it. If they had merely judged themselves by their circumstances, if they had merely looked around them and seen the devastation and the despair, the deaths, they would be overwhelmed. But our covenantal, kind, merciful, gracious God speaks to them in the midst of it, revealing himself as the judge and as the Savior. Because he knows in these circumstances there's an instability, there's a shakenness, there's a feeling of desperate weakness, impotence in God's people. And so he wants them to see again the true God, the living God, the covenantal God, and he wants them to once again put their trust in him. They want him, God wants them to once again Remember his promises to them. 
And so today, as we look at this passage, we'll look in three points. We want to see how in uncertain times, in times of trial, in times of tribulation, in difficult times, in times when the world seems upside down, how can God's people have stability? Even further, how can we have happy stability and a spiritual sight that we can behold and see our God, that we can remember who we are, that we can press on with endurance by His grace. The three ways we'll look at this is first is to remember that in these kind of times that God always uh, ordains our adversity and our afflictions. That's the first truth we want to draw from this passage is God ordains our uh, adversity and our affliction because he has a purpose for them. The second thing we want to look at is our God calls his people in this adversity, in, this, in these times of affliction, to rely on his promises, and to remember prayer, that he's given us both so that we could endure and grow and thrive. And finally, we want to be able to see with the prophet, we want to have a spiritual sight. We want to remember that there's an end coming to our adversity and our affliction. But the first thing we look at is that God ordains the adversity and the affliction with a purpose in mind. And the first is that we, as God's people, would know that He's the true King, that He's the true judge, that He's the true ruler, that He's the one who rules and reigns over heaven and earth. As Isaiah caught a glimpse of God's glory in Earlier in Isaiah 6. So he wants us to have that kind of picture of God as king. Of his, his, his greatness, uh, his holiness. Uh, filling the heavenly temple. And being a God who is not merely far away. But one who is near to us. One who is showing himself, proving himself to be our covenantal Lord. In fact, he wants us to understand that he is the judge and the savior and that we never forget that. Notice how he begins the passage. He's addressing Assyria at this time who's turned Judah's lives upside down. And God has used Assyria as an instrument of his judgment. And yet he tells Assyria, though they're proud in their power he tells them, you destroyer, you've not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. He's reminding Judah that in the adversity and affliction, his purpose is that they could know, they could be reminded, he's the governor, he's the great king, he's the one ruling and reigning over heaven and earth. And we're not to fear, we're to take heart in that. He's the judge that though he's pleased to use uh, fallen mankind, powerful kings and rulers as instruments of his judgment at temporal times in history, he raises up and he puts down. He raises up and he puts down. And Assyria too will come to be judged eventually. This great power will come to be judged. In fact, at the end of the passage, he wants us to understand as God's people uh, in verse 22, that the Lord is our judge. 
The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He's not only the judge of the living and the dead. He's the savior of those who in adversity, in affliction, would turn from their sins, acknowledge him, him as king, acknowledge him, him as all-powerful, acknowledging him as the true judge, and humbly submit to him in faith. This passage is focusing God's people's attention on God as judge, as savior, when in verse 5, We're told the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. The covenantal Lord is transcendent, but he's also the one who through covenant is with his people. He's not forsaken his people. He's not forgotten his people. He's not forgetting to be faithful to his people. That he will with purpose still fill Zion with righteousness and justice. That there will be a happy ending. In fact, in verse 10, he says... I will arise, says the Lord, as the true judge. I will lift myself up. I will be exalted. And so, beloved, a very important truth to take with us today when things are turned upside down, when we're tempted to despair, when we don't understand what is going on around us in history, a great truth to take upon our hearts and especially on our lips is that God has a purpose To be exalted through it. Yes, it humbles us. But it's so that he'll be exalted as the true governor. As the true king. So that we will know that what he's pronounced as a truth of judgment and salvation. But as a truth, particularly here. Will come to pass. That God will keep his word and be faithful to us. That we can hear these words in times of adversity, in times of affliction. I will arise. I will lift myself up. I will be exalted. And so a purpose, a very important purpose of God ordaining adversity and affliction is that he would be exalted as, for the, to be the king that he is. That he would be acknowledged as the judge that he truly is. The lawmaker and even the savior as we will see more fully in a moment. But that we would recognize him as the triumph God, the glorious God, the loving God, the powerful God. In fact, verse 13 calls all to hear. You who are far off, hear that I will be the judge, that I will be exalted, that I will rise up. Those who are far off, hear what I have done and you who are near. Another reason For God's purpose in adversity and affliction is not only his exaltation, not only for him to be exalted for who he is as God, but to to teach his people, to train his people. Listen to what he says back in uh, Isaiah 29 and how he says that the condition of his people right now at this time in redemptive history were a people who were merely worshiping outwardly. They weren't worshiping from the heart. He says in verse 13, the people draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, he goes on to say at the end of chapter 29, they will sanctify my name. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. But he describes Israel at this point as no different than the nations. 
the visible church who has been uh, those who've received God's great blessings, his covenant kindness, his word, his prophets, are the ones he's calling uh, as a rebellious people, lying children, those who are unwilling to hear the Lord God. And then he says at the end of verse 30, or in the end of chapter 30 in verse 20, he says, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will hide himself no more. Your eyes shall see your teacher. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then gone will be your idols. So another very important purpose of God's adversity and affliction that he brings upon us is to train. It's to teach his people. It's not to condemn them, but it is to awaken them. It is, if I could use Peter's words, that judgment begins with the house of God. That he's reminding them that they too need to acknowledge him as king, as the exalted one, as the one who has bestowed covenant promises on them. That they're to worship him in spirit and truth. That they're to hear and obey his word. And so the reasons for this adversity and affliction is for God to be exalted and for the world to know that he's the true king who truly is judge, truly is savior, but that his people might be trained. His people might be taught that they would see the right way, that they would turn to him for his grace. But that's the second thing we want to note about this passage is our God uh, teaches us that he gives us his promises and he gives us prayer in our times of affliction. We have Isaiah as a prophet representative of Israel speaking in verse 2 of chapter 33 saying, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Be our salvation in our time of trouble. Isaiah is praying on behalf of Israel that all of Israel learn to pray that God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's our ever-present help in times of trouble. Beloved, this is particularly um, important to remember here because at this time... Judah, in the face of the turmoil, in the face of their trials, in the face of the tribulation, they were making alliances with Egypt. As we find in chapters 30 and 31, they were making these alliances that they thought their military might, their political alliances could bring about change. And Isaiah is reminding them, God's reminding them through Isaiah that it's through the promises through prayer that God's people are changed. That it's not just to merely get on the other side of adversity and affliction, but the purpose of it is to learn through the adversity and affliction how to trust God, how to truly uh, know His love for us, how to truly understand His kindness and mercy towards us, how to truly know we can relate to Him in prayer. And that's why he tells us in verse 6 that God will be the stability of your times. 
You've sought it elsewhere. But God will be the stability of times. In fact, more than that, this promise is to go deep into them, into their hearts, so that they can understand by the power of God's Spirit that He is with them. He's not forsaken them. That God is the stability. He's the abundance of salvation. He's their wisdom and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is Zion's true treasure. The people of God at this time, in being tempted toward the ease and the comfort of the flesh, toward the power of military might, of political uh, alliances, here God is saying through Isaiah, I will be the stability of times. That's my promise to you in every age, that to be your savior, your wisdom, your knowledge, and to remember the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Well, let me ask you for a moment. Let's think together, beloved. When we see the circumstances around us, whether in our family, in our churches, in our nation, in our world, and we see the trials and the tribulations, we see the difficulties, we see the desperate place in which we live at this time in history, do you fully, completely believe God's promises? Do you fear that all that you see will get the best of you? None of us have gotten to the place where we're completely facing trials and circumstances in the promises and in with prayer to God. And so this passage is completely relevant. It's a completely useful and helpful passage for us uh, in every generation. No matter who the rulers, no matter how, the, how we uh, are experiencing the oppression, no matter the, uh, per, the, persevere, the, the persecution that may be happening, our God will be the stability of our times. You think about that stability that we have in his word. Not only in the person of God being with us and promising never to leave us, but in his word of promise. The stability. Everything in this world, the Bible says, will be shaken. These historical events that uh, Israel was going through, or Judah was going through more particularly, and that we can go through at, at times in history, they shake us. They shake our faith. They tempt us to fear. And God is saying, I am your God. Do not fear. I am with you. I have given you my word. I've given you my promise. I will be in my person your stability. That which gives you, if you will, sea legs upon the storm. That which will help you to balance upon the beam. That which will help you to stand firm on the rock. That which will help you when everything's shaken, that you'll remain unshaken, both physically and especially spiritually. And so he tells us most particularly that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Beloved, through adversity and affliction, that's how God gets our attention as his church. That's how he reminds us that we are not to be drawn to the allurement of the world that promises ease and comfort. That we're not to be drawn to the world that promises some kind of might or power to support us. We're not to be allured to materialism or our own strength or our own knowledge. We're not to rely on um, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. 
the Lord uses these circumstances to bring us low in order to cause us to hear better, to listen better, and to know the fear of the Lord. You see, in contrast to those who are fearing God, that is, they're afraid of Him as judge, there are the true Israel, there are the true believers, the true children of Abraham that are walking uprightly. Look at chapter 33 in verse 14. When there's a wrong kind of fear contrasted with the fear of the Lord that is a treasure. Listen to this fear, the wrong kind of fear. It says in verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. That's the godless within the visible church. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? There's a fear not only of circumstances, but there's a wrong fear of God. And yet, the one who can walk righteously, the one who can speak uprightly, the one who, doesn't dis who despises the gains of oppression, worldliness, the allurement of the world and the flesh and the evil one, the one who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, shuts his eyes from looking on evil, verse 16, he will dwell on the heights. But that's not something that we in ourselves have the power to work in us. It's through adversity. It's through affliction that God brings his church through in order to awaken her, in order to cause us to listen better, to be more focused on him, to remind us that he is with us and to truly fear him. Look back at verse 6 at the end. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. If a false fear is running from God in shame, afraid of his judgment, what is this true fear? It is running to him as Savior. It's running to him as the one who is the covenantal Lord. The one who has condescended to promise himself and his presence to ever be with his people. It is the fear of the Lord that is right, is a wonder. It's an awe that God is the exalted one, that God is the king, that he's the glorious one. That through this adversity, through this affliction, I want to know him ultimately more deeply. I want to know his promises more experientially. I want to know how to pray to him and relate to him and trust him and believe him without fear. That fear of the Lord is a promise that's given that is a treasure of ours to, by grace, through faith, to see God as king, as judge of all those who would reject him, but as savior of all those he's drawn near through promise. Earlier in chapter 30, and it's worth turning here in verse 15, we hear more about this fear of the Lord. It, the fear of the Lord here is, is more fully exegeted, exegeted for us, drawn out. In verse 15 of chapter 30, what the adversity and affliction that God has purposed for his people is that Israel, though described as those not seeing, not hearing, disobedient children would be these. Verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning or in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. 
In quietness and trust shall be your strength. At this time, Israel's unwilling. Israel's looking for alliances elsewhere. And yet God, verse 18, continues his great grace toward his people. Verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The the Lord exalts himself not to judge you, beloved, but to show mercy to you. For the Lord, yes, is a God of justice. He is the judge. But blessed are those who wait for him. And so the adversity and affliction that God brings is to remind us of his promises that are found in himself, in his word, that bring stability to our lives, that make us invincible, that make us, as the elder prayed this morning, those who know that God is for us, who know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who know that God is near, who are being called to turn from our sins daily, especially as we feel that adversity, especially as we feel uh, that affliction in our lives, that we turn from our sins to behold the King, not as our judge, but as our merciful gracious Savior. And that's what he teaches us. That that fear of the Lord, that awe, that returning or repentance and rest shall be your strength. Quietness and trust shall be your strength. Quietness and trust not in ourselves, but in God. Look at the end of verse or chapter 32, verse 17. He tells us especially of a time when the Spirit will be poured out on high for God's people to be awakened, for God's people to hear, for God's people to see, for God's people to believe, for God's people to trust. And verse 17 says, And the effect of righteousness will be shalom, peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. And so, beloved, the Lord shows us that he ordains that adversity and that affliction with the purpose of exalting himself, of training his people in righteousness, of being a kind father who disciplines his children. We're taught that the adversity and the affliction particularly calls us to believe his promises, to trust not only in him, our great God, but his word to us as it's given through his prophet. Don't forget that in the midst of the, the, the turmoil, in the midst of the situation, God speaks a word of truth, a word of hope, reminding them of the stability that he promises them in himself and in his word. But finally, there's the third. The adversity and the affliction will end. As we wait, beloved as we live as pilgrims between the promise that's been given in his word and the fulfillment of those promises, it's still a very difficult, often hard uh, pilgrimage. And as we wait between those two, we're remembered, we're reminded, I should say, we should remember that God says that there is an end coming for adversity, for affliction, that 
what he has purposed to do as judge in the world will come to pass. And what he's purposed to do in his church will be accomplished. And he tells us for now, verse 17, remember not just your happy stability in my word, in me, but remember the spiritual sight I give you in my word. Remember that your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. The king in his beauty, that's the king who's revealed in the beginning of Isaiah. Where Isaiah realized in the presence of this beautiful, thrice holy king, the governor of the universe, the holy, holy, holy covenantal God of Israel, he realized he was a man undone and living among a people who were undone. And that it was only by grace he could be saved. But his eyes had seen the king in his glory. And Isaiah wants us to have that same kind of spiritual sight day in and day out from the word as we behold that beauty. What is the beauty of the king particularly? It is a king who will destroy all of our enemies. That's his beauty or his glory. It is a king who is holy, holy, holy. It is a king who is the true judge, who is the lawmaker. It is the king who is the savior. His beauty is his glory, and his glory is ultimately revealed in the fullness of time in the person of Jesus Christ. This beauty your eyes will behold. The people of God throughout uh, Isaiah's time, Isaiah was would tell them much about the coming king. That he would be like the father, high and lifted up, but he would be distinct from, that this would be a king who would come as a shepherd king to bring in all righteousness, to bring in a proper salvation of his people, to begin a work that he would promise to accomplish. And having seen that king by faith, there would also, the people would see a land that stretches afar. And it wouldn't be a broken land, beloved. It wouldn't be a broken world. It wouldn't be a world turned upside down. It wouldn't be an unrighteous world. It wouldn't be a world full of mourners. It wouldn't be a world full of blind men and lame men and deaf men. It wouldn't be a world full of sinners. No, this king would come. And as verse 24 says, that absolutely no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Well, how does God bring this about, beloved? <clears throat> Ultimately, with the coming of Christ, absolutely yes and amen. But particularly in this way, that when the king came in his beauty and his glory, the first time he did not come to judge, but to save. He came, in fact, to live the perfect life of righteousness, to fulfill all the demands of the law, to pay the debt he did not owe on our behalf, on behalf of all who believe, to show forth that the glory of God, the beauty of God, is also found through 
adversity and affliction. That the beauty and glory of God can be found in Christ in humiliation. Because he caused his cross that he went willingly for us. The place where God would be glorified. The place where God would show his glory. Where God would show the beauty of his plan, of his purpose. For all adversity, for all affliction. And that on the cross of Christ, this king would not come first to rule. Would not come first to reign. Would not come first to judge. But would come to lay down his life as a servant slave. In order to redeem Israel from all their sins and iniquity. He would take upon himself the judgment of the nations, the wrath of God that you and I and all sinners deserve. He would on the cross take not just the sins of one man, but all of the sins of those whom he loves. And he would take those sins for us in judgment so that we could know him so that we could know the living God. So that we could know life and life more abundantly. And so that we could know that when we go through adversity and affliction, we're in fellowship with Christ. We're in fellowship in His humiliation. And here's something to remember. We want to remember this. That yes, Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day and is seated at God's right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king of glory at God's right hand. He is the king who possesses the spirit in his fullness. He is the king to pour out his spirit upon us so we'd be awakened, so we'd hear, so we'd see, so we'd believe, so we'd trust, so we'd be confident, so we'd know that God is the stability of our times because he never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that so we'd know this great promise as he waits for judgment on the nations in his first coming in order for this other passage in Isaiah to take place. Look at Isaiah 19. Our passage was addressed to, Samar uh, to Assyria. And God was showing himself as the exalted king and judge. Who would judge all sinners, all nations, all those who are enemies of God's people. But here we have a gospel hope that Jesus brings in his person and work. In Isaiah 19, verse 23, hear God's word, beloved. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the, the Assyrians. But they won't worship false gods, beloved. Verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Blessing, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So what that reminds us, beloved, is that in adversity and affliction, yes, the king of glory will come and he will manifest himself as the judge of the living and the dead of all those who rejected Christ, whether inside 
the visible church or whether outside the visible church, whether those who were close to the covenant promises and had been raised under the word or those who were far away. But the same truth is also true as Ephesians 2 says, that those who are near are invited or welcome to come to Christ, to know him, not as judge, but as savior, as beautiful, glorious savior. And the same is true for those who are far away, that those who are far away from the covenant, the nations would come and know God as not the judge, but as the savior. And that's the work he's given into our hands, that as we go about our lives, beloved, and we see the adversity that's real, the affliction that's painful, those real things that happen in our lives, they're devastating. They're very extremely hard. And yet, God has told us, I have a purpose for that. I have a purpose in order that you would know that I'm exalting myself, that I am teaching you as my people, I'm training you as a kind and gentle father, that through those uh, difficult times particularly, we're learning to rest stable on God's promises, especially as they're fully revealed in Christ, and to know that on those promises we also can have spiritual sight to see and believe that God in his glory has been fully manifested in Jesus who is, our, who is the judge of the living and the dead, but he is particularly our savior. And it can give us that compassion, that boldness, that courage to remember that we were not too far from his saving mercies. And there is no one too far for saving mercies of God who will simply find this truth out that in repentance and rest shall be your salvation. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. So today, let us remind ourselves of the happy stability we have in Jesus upon his word, and let us remember that we can have the spiritual sight to see him through the word. We're told in the Bible to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're told in the Bible that as we gaze upon God's glory in Christ, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us. That even as we're outwardly wasting away, inwardly we can be transformed, renewed day by day as we are gazing on the glory, the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ, knowing that we're heirs of the cosmos in him, that we're his children, that he loves us, and that one day he will judge all of our enemies who have not believed, and he will bring us safely and securely home to him in Christ. Let that be our hope today, Church of the Lord Jesus. And let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for your uh, greatness and your power, your might, your uh, holy, your being holy, holy, holy. 
We thank you that you're the God who is with us. We thank you that you're the God who is for us. We thank you that if you be for us, who can be against us? And we ask you that you would help us, Lord, in our hearts, that we remember that you're the one to be exalted, that you're the one who teaches us, that you have a purpose for us through these times of difficulty, that we remember your promises, that we would, through prayer, know you better and relate to you and trust you and be more confident in our faith and that you would help us to see, to see the smiling Savior who always receives us daily as we come to him through faith and repentance. And help us, Lord, to remember that the Assyrians who were uh, the great arch enemies of you and your people that you promised through Isaiah that the nations, that the descendants of the Assyrians would come from afar, the Gentiles, and they would come by faith. And we thank you that many of us today are recipients of that promise or the realization of those promises. Let this be our hope. Let this be our confidence. Let this be our happy stability and our spiritual sight in these times in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the church responded with a resounding, Amen.